Amen. You may be seated. Well, I went and added it up. We're in our 18th week of kingdom culture. This is the end. Now, don't celebrate because I thought it was a pretty good job. I'm just not sure. But anyway, kingdom culture, if you look on your outline, I have a lot of reading to do this morning, and I think it will help you understand a little bit more of what has been going on here for years as we've been trying to build this culture as a church and how we conduct ourselves. Now, for those of you who do not know this, uh, we do have, uh, it's called Our Culture. It's back there on the iDesk. There's several handouts back there that goes through all 11 of these. And, and it's written at, it's out there for us to look at and to help you to understand that not only do we believe it's important for us to have good doctrine, good theology, but for us to understand the culture in which we meet. And that includes everything from the mandate that was given to us by Jesus Christ as he left this world and entered into heaven and, and gave us a mandate to reach the world all the way to why we call things what we call them, which we'll be looking at today. So look at the series introduction. Because we are a collection of many people from various uh, places, backgrounds, and stories, we believe culture making is essential for unifying our church family around a shared vision as we carry the message of Jesus to the world. We exist to love God. God, connect with others, and reach the world. We believe that's the vision God's given us. And, and your staff, we measure things by what we do around here based on this vision. And if it doesn't fit into these three things, we don't do it. And so that's our attempt to do that. And we do that by creating a culture where Jesus is our lead story, scripture and prayer prime, worship is a lifestyle, we are a family, we is greater than me, we get to is greater than we got to. Transformation is greater than tradition. Generosity is common. Multiplication is greater than addition. We are kingdom focused. And today we're looking at we are unapologetically intentional. And we do this really in three areas. So look there on your outline. In our words. We believe words matter. With them we create the culture in which we live. That's why we try not to use cliches and do not feel bound by standard terminology. For instance, we call our time together on Sundays gatherings instead of services, realizing that when we are together, it is more like a family get-together. We also want to, people to understand that we don't take the offering. We create an opportunity to give an offering. And again, these are some goals, some things that we want to challenge you with that, that our words do mean something. To me, taking the offering is being held at gunpoint. <laughs> so therefore, we are going to give you an opportunity to give the offering. We refer to those leading in worship as worship leaders. They are not a band performing a gig or a choir singing presentations of music. They are leading us to join them in glorifying Christ. Rather than Sunday school, I still haven't got this one figured out. I still call it Sunday school. Rather than Sunday school, we believe that connect groups better convey what we are trying to accomplish. A small group connected to the heart of God while connecting with one another through prayer, studying God's word, and doing life together. We seek to create and shape our culture by using words and phrases that accurately reflect the people we want to be and the things we endeavor to do. All right. Also, we're uh, intentional in our planning. We, we realize that we decide what we decide to leave out of our gatherings and ministries is just as important as what we put into them. This is why each ministry here at Putnam takes time to plan and pray as we prepare. We realize that God's spirit is ultimately directing us. And y'all, if we ever lose sight of that, 
again, shut the doors because he must be directing us. Therefore, our planning intentionally follows the vision he has given us. Regular, ordinary, and unusual are not on our list of values. We believe creativity and excellence are a big part of the process of engaging the hearts and minds of people. Excellence is defined for us as removing distractions so people can see Jesus. From the spoken, from the word spoken from the stage to the smallest audio or lighting transition, we want people, we want to be excellent and give our best so that people can focus on Christ. We value creativity because it points people in a culturally relevant way to the ultimate creator. Whether we use a video, prop, song, event, or illustration, all is carefully planned and intentional, designed to bring people to Christ. And then thirdly, our our intentionality includes in our environment. Because God is the most beautiful one of all, beauty matters in all we do. When it comes to our environments, we want to reflect this beauty. Intentional design affirms that we are current and helps us usher his unchanging message to a rapidly changing world. That's why we put so much thought and energy into the spaces we invite people into. We are passionate about the physical and emotional safety of our church family during our times together. Therefore, we want, we want to hope for the best and plan for the worst. I don't know if you know this or not, but we've, we paid close attention uh, not only to have a uniform, uh, unif- uh, uniform officer in our services, but also we have security that's, that's, that's in the room. Uh, they've been trained to know how to take care of interruptions. Uh, we have uh, people who are here who are, can help us with medical emergencies. All that's intentional. Again, when we come together, we want to feel safe so we can hear from God's word. Uh, we, we want that to be in place so you can come in here in an environment and just freely worship the Lord, as, as we've been called to do. Again, we desire that people feel welcome and not threatened in our gatherings. We also have created age-appropriate spaces for our ministry. We have carefully crafted a children's center, a student center, and an adult center with each generational mindset involved. Before most people hear us, they see us. We want what they see to be inviting, interesting, inspiring, excellent, and compelling. And by the way, let me just say this. Jesus is every bit of what I just described there at the end. And that's what we're after. And so everything from our lead story, that Jesus is our lead story, all the way to the fine ways in which we just try to communicate what we're about. We want it all to to make sense. We want it all not to just be cliches and, and it's something we've always called things, but it better translates into what we're attempting to do. And so therefore, I want you to turn this morning to Nehemiah chapter 1. And I want to show you what a church looks like when it intentionally desires to follow the heart of God. When when it's one of those things in which we believe God's put a mandate on us, He's given us a vision to accomplish, we believe it's important that we follow God wholeheartedly. And so, with it being graduates today, Michaela, this is also for you, since you're the only one in here. But anyway, it's there to, uh, I want to challenge our graduates, but I want to challenge our church to think intentionally. Now, just as we will see with Nehemiah, here's what we all need to understand, whether we're a graduate or not. God has a plan for our lives, something he desires us to do with our lives. How many of you have ever thought of that? 
Some of you may be sitting here today and say, hey, I'm 70, 80 years old. Guess what? Your life may just be beginning. If you go back to the Old Testament where we are today, uh, you'll see that Caleb was in his 80s and before his whole life just started to take off. And so there's no limitations with God and what he desires to do in our lives no matter what age we are. You see, another thing is this, a vision with which you provide the passion to carry it out. God places purpose. He places vision within each of our lives. For some people, it may be nothing more than, and this is a big nothing more, than just raising godly children. Maybe that's what God's placed on your heart. It may be something more than that. It could be something, well, I can't think of anything more than that, but let me just say there may be something else that he's called you to. Whatever it may be, God has all called us to something. To fulfill what he desires us to do. And to do that, we've got to respond to a vision from God. Here's what we need. We need discipline. We need courage. We need focus. We need determination. And we need a healthy culture around us. And so when you start to say, okay, God, it is in the provision that you have in my life. There's, There's a provision and there's a purpose that you've placed in my life. God, what do you want me to do with it? Here's what God has shown me in my lifetime. He will bring the vision, and I bring the passion. And and here's what you'll find in Scripture many times. You'll, You'll find that there's this whole idea of something that is fervent. God has called us to be fervent. You know that's another word for passion? It's a whole idea, a whole idea of being on fire for what God has called us to, to, to have discipline, to be courageous, to have focus and determination, determination. But guess what? When we as a church, as individuals, when we take on that mindset and we come together in a culture, there's no telling what God is capable of doing. Look at the 12 men Jesus called. Did they fail at times? Most definitely. Was there fervency in their walk? Yes. Was there passion? Was there purpose? There was every bit of that. And those 12 men changed the world. Changed the world. And God can call us to do the same. Whether we're a graduate or whether we're a church, we're individuals who believe that there's a purpose. Now, let me just say this. Many times the vision or purpose, and this is big. This is something I found out in my own life recently. Many times the vision or purpose requires us to take back what the enemy has taken. I want you to think about that. Sometimes the vision God places in you, sometimes the purpose that he has in your life is to take back the ground that the enemy has taken in your life. Now you say, well, where does that come from? How does that happen? Well, things that you may uh, be a victim of. There could be something in your past back there. It may be abuse. It may be, I don't know what it is. It's severe dysfunction, whatever it may be. It could be that there's something back there in which God, his vision for you is to take back what the enemy has taken from you. Whether it was your innocence, whatever it may be. And for you, it may be to, to, to bring that road to recovery. Because guess what? We are capable as people to pass on the dysfunction that we have to the next generation. I've told many people. And they've come and they've told me their story of how God has enabled them to take back some ground in which the enemy has taken from them. Maybe it was through the way they were raised or whatever it may be. And, and guess what? You know what I tell them? I say, you know what you are? You're a generation breaker. 
You're one of those who refuses to allow the dysfunction to continue into the next generation. You're one of those who sees that what you're dealing with, that you're living in a life and and there's really not a purpose there because you've been a victim of what the enemy has taken. And so for some of us sitting in this room, it's nothing more than overcoming that and being courageous enough to face it and to say, I will not be taken by this any longer. For some of us, Maybe what we have back there is what we brought upon ourselves. It's amazing how many people you find in Scripture who brought things upon themselves. King David, man after God's own heart. Listen, there's, there, there's some great things about King David in Scripture. Listen, he conquered so many things. He had vision. He had passion. He had discipline. He had everything that it took. He stood up during the, the times of testing. But then guess what? There was a time in which he fell. He was also on the other side of all that. He was one of those who, who, in which he did invite a lot of dysfunction into his family. And you see the dysfunction in many of his children. But then you see David trying to turn it around and see what God could do in his life. And you see, that may be where you are. Or it could be that God wants you to help take the ground back from those that are around you. He's called you alongside of someone to help them. You know, it's amazing. You know what I found out as a pastor? This is, what I, this is what I believe the true calling of many pastors is in this day and age. Most of what I do as a pastor is to help people take back what the enemy has taken. And I never thought of that until recently. I've never thought of it that way. But most of the time when people come into my office, whether it's a couple, individual, whatever it may be, you know what we're talking about? We're talking about ground in which the enemy has taken in their life, in their marriage or whatever it may be. And it's amazing. Sometimes God calls you to come alongside people to help take back the land and the territory that the enemy's taken. And here's what I want us to do. In the context of all that, I want us to look at Nehemiah and his story. Probably, I believe, one of the greatest books in Scripture, and there's some of you who agree because I've talked with you about it, is probably the book of Nehemiah. Many people, do you know many people in the business world and as far as teaching leadership use the book of Nehemiah? It's, it's pretty amazing because there's so many components of good leadership. There's so many components of getting the job done. And whether you're, as I said before, you're a graduate or we as a church, what, whatever you're trying to accomplish, there's great things right here. There's nuggets that we can pull from Scripture. So let's look at this. Look on your outline. The churches are graduates, if you want to put it on that terminology, with the greatest impact in the world, have many similarities with Nehemiah's intentionality. First of all, and you've heard this before, they have a compelling purpose. There's a compelling purpose. There's something that they're drawn to. It was interesting. I was talking to a, a teenager the other day, and uh, the teenager, for, I think, is around 17 years of age. And that teenager was just so on fire, for, uh, believing what God had already laid on their heart. And listen, it doesn't always have to be full-time ministry. So many times we think that to, the pinnacle of being all that God desires is to, to be the missionary in Africa. Now, we respect that. We love that people feel called to do that, to leave the comforts and conveniences of their life behind to go and tackle those type projects. But guess what? It could be in the secular world. It could be right there where you are. I don't know many people who have the greatest opportunity to to change hearts than school teachers. They have tremendous abilities, even sometimes more than, than, than student pastors do. Because they're right there with those kids. And I know you're, you have limitations, but guess what? Children know when they're loved. 
They know when they've been embraced. And so, therefore, I'm not talking about necessarily the pinnacle of being a missionary or a pastor. I'm talking about in anything God calls you to do. This 17-year-old was telling me the other day that, you know something? I believe God's called me to do such and such. And you know what? I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. You know why? Because I believe God's called me to help people. And I was like, that is very impressive. I like to hear teenagers talk that way. And, it's, and I tell you, it really kind of made me even look at my own self. But here it is. The people who change the world, they impact the world. They have a compelling purpose, but it comes with passion. It comes with passion. I want to describe to you what's going on here in Nehemiah. And, uh, Nehemiah, if you go ahead and turn there, if you haven't, the Babylonian captivity happened about 80 years prior. And what happened is uh, the, the northern kingdom, if you remember, there was a divided kingdom between north, uh, north, the north kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, the north was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And what happened was the Assyrians came in, uh, I think it was around 721 uh, B.C. They came in and, and just basically took over the north. And so they were very vicious people, and they did some horrible things to God's people. But then, several, many years later, 445 B.C., the Babylonians came in and took the southern kingdom. And so what you have here is, is basically people in shambles. Now, 80 years after this took place, Israel, the southern kingdom was conquered. What they did, let me tell you, first of all, the Babylonians would go and conquer people, and then they would scatter them. They would literally uproot most of them and take them off somewhere else. It is believed that the Babylonian captivity, that those who were scattered, actually made their way to Alexandria, Egypt. Okay? That's what many scholars believe. But guess what? There were still some that were still left. And they were left right there in that region. And so Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. Of, 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 uh, and, and there's all kinds of things coming down. So they would scatter to the people. And what they were attempting to do is uh, take away the identity of the people. Now, what do we know about the Jews? Who are they? What was their identity? They were God's people. That's what their identity For bad or for worse, they were God's people. God called them that even when they weren't obeying him. And so he had, they attempted it. Now, three waves of people came to the region, okay? So, so you got all this captivity. You got all these people displaced. You got the identity removed. And three waves of Jews came back to attempt to resurrect Jerusalem, okay? Because it was in shambles. Now, Nehemiah receives a report concerning Jerusalem, the temple, and the condition of the people, so in Nehemiah chapter 1, they're given, he's given this report. I want you to look at verse 3. And they said to me, those who gave this report, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there. They are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is all broken down and its gates are burned with fire. The last thing that you would want in that time period is to have a city with no walls. You were open prey to anyone who came by. And so Jerusalem, that mighty city, is now in shambles. The walls have come down. There's no gates any longer, verse 4. So it was when I heard these words that I, Nehemiah, sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. What do you hear there? You hear passion. You hear passion. God laid some. There was a compelling purpose that was laid on his heart. 
And so therefore, I want to ask you a question. Is there a compelling purpose that God has laid on your heart? Is there passion that's come from that? Now think of this. In these verses, we clearly hear the passion and concern of Nehemiah. Just as Nehemiah, we have a compelling purpose that has been given to us. The passion of Christ, listen, as it relates to us as a church, the passion of Christ should be the passion of the church. What God is passionate about, we should be passionate about, especially Christ. What, what, what Christ is compassionate about, we should be compassionate about. And so therefore, if he's the head and we're the body, we are to carry out the mission of having passion for what the head has passion for, and that's Christ and his compassions. Next, they have a compelling purpose. There's passion, but there's also discipline. Let me say this. I've met a lot of people who had great passion, but no discipline. How many of you have heard people like that? They're people, they got, they have, and I hate to, I'm, please understand, I, I mean this in a good spirit, but they, ha, they got all the right talk. They got all the right energy, but they never get down and do it. And I hear a lot of people that way. Matter of fact, I, I remember when our kids were coming through, I, uh, I had a lot more uh, a lot more conversations with teenagers when my kids were teenagers because sometimes they'd come to the house and that kind of thing. And I would hear many times of these teenagers and they had, the, they had these great plans they wanted to accomplish. There was these great things they wanted to do. They had great passion. There was a compelling purpose that seemed to be in their life. And then all of a sudden, four years later, they haven't accomplished anything. You go back and talk with them. They say, well, that's just a phase I was going through. Could it be that that was actually the compelling purpose that God had given them? Some of you are sitting here today, and you can identify with what teenagers You remember those days. I remember people telling me that there was a time in their life where they felt like God was calling them in some kind of ministry, and they didn't follow through. I mean, and they, they strike it as, that was just a phase I went through. Really? Could it be, and I hate that, could it be you just didn't have the discipline to carry it out? It was just too hard? There were other things that distracted you? Could it be that that's going on today? I want you to look at Nehemiah. Flip over a couple pages, chapter 6. Look, look at verse 15. I'm going to go to almost the end of the story. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elu in 52 days. Very impressive, by the way. The task they set out to do took only an amazing 52 days to complete. Why? Because they had a compelling purpose which moved them with passion. But it wasn't just passion. They had the discipline to do it. The discipline to actually carry it out. You see, here's where I am. I believe passion rests in the heart and the minds of people. But the discipline happens when we put feet to it, when we put our hands to it. And many times there's no connection made with the hands and feet. And so therefore, it goes undone. You see, discipline speaks of focus. It speaks of a willingness to sacrifice. How many of you hear people talk about the greatest generation? Go back to World War I, World War II, the Great Depression. You know what you find back there? You know why they were the greatest generation? Because they knew how to sacrifice. The generations that came later... I'm just going to be honest with you. It may be on an individual basis that many of us had to sacrifice, but as generations, we did not have to sacrifice anywhere close to those who have gone before us. Nowhere close. And I think that's why America is where it is today. 
We don't really realize what we have. It's almost like the, 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 the first generation of wealth. How many of you have heard of the first generation of wealth? They, they accumulate all this wealth, and they work hard. They make sacrifices. They've done all these things, maybe to their own detriment. I'm not saying it was all good. Many times it's not. But all of a sudden, the next generation gets that wealth. And you know what happens 80% of the time? It's gone. You know why? Because they, they're the ones that didn't earn it. They're the ones that didn't sacrifice. They're the ones that didn't have the focus to accomplish those things. I think that's what's going on with those generations that have come in America. Things have come really too easy. Too easy. And so therefore, we may have a compelling purpose. We may have a passion. But many people today don't have the discipline to carry those things out. Very few do. How many of you find it refreshing to find those who actually do? Isn't it cool to hear people like Abraham and Nepal? To hear about, I mean, you don't believe those people sacrifice over there? Go over there for yourself and watch what goes on. And there's many other people. There's people sitting right here who are accomplishing great things. There's a compelling purpose that's in your life and you're going out. Here, here it is. Next, they had a continual prayer life which speaks of their integrity. In Nehemiah chapter 1, go back to 1, go, look at verse 5. And I said, he turned that around. He heard, he responded in a way that you, it was so obvious he had passion. Verse 5, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you that you may hear the prayer of your servant. Now look at the attitude in which he took. He said, I am your servant. I am here. I'm the compelling purpose you put in me. Listen, I'm here to serve that purpose. I'm here to bring the passion, to bring the discipline. And now I'm bringing the integrity for that great work. And he says this in verse six, please let your ear be attended to your servant, which I pray before you now. And look at how often he did it, night and day. Now, how many of you agree we live in a world in which if it's not instant, we move on? You do know we're that way. Go to Bojangles drive-thru. Let me sit in the car with you. And I'll tell, I, I can tell a lot about you. <laughs> not picking on Bojangles. Chick-fil-A's got it perfect, by the way. But anyway. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying in this is everything is so instantaneous. We've been trained that when something, we want it, it happens now. We get on the internet, we want information. We were sitting there the other night watching a show and I had my phone there and I was thinking, where have I seen that person before? I took my phone and asked Siri. Siri knew exactly where, I mean, I had the answer right there. And Siri does get on my nerves sometimes. But anyway, but, but, but it's all right there in front of us. Everywhere, everything is so easy. Are we people who will allow that compelling purpose to be in our lives until it haunts us, until day and night. That's what we're thinking about. It keeps us up at night. It causes us to, in the days that we're awake and, and ready to move, there's a passion ready to jump on what God's called us to do. We live in a generation that if it don't come tomorrow, we're moving on. And what a great tragedy. What a great tragedy. He says, you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins and the children of, of the children of Israel which have sinned against you. Both my father's house, listen to this, and I have sinned. 
It takes great integrity. Let me just say this. This is what I found out about living the length of time I've lived. And some of you get bypassed me, some, many, some of you several de- decades. But anyway, here's what I've noticed. The greatest moments of integrity that I have individually is when I acknowledge my sin. When I acknowledge that it's there. Most of us, we just rationalize it or pretend like it's not there. He acknowledges it as his sin. I want you you to think about that. Look at verse 11. Oh, Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to to fear your name, to have a holy reverence, and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of, of this man. You know who this man was? It was the king who was able to make the compelling purpose work out. Is King Artaxerxes. And he is king there. And, and, and he's calling the shots. Well, at least he thinks he is. But you know something? He was the one that was capable of making it happen. Nehemiah's prayer. Listen to what he was doing. Acknowledging the people's sin. Coming before the Lord in humility. Identifying his own sin. Listen, this prayer shows and demonstrates the integrity of Nehemiah. And by the way, integrity must be the foundation of any great work. Integrity is maintained and can only be maintained through prayer. When we see God as he truly is and we see ourselves as we truly are, that is the heart and the epitome of integrity. When we see it the way he sees us. Listen to this quote. A great inner work always precedes a great outer work. And then you can put my name beside that. I came up with that one. All right, let's move on. All right. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Next, they have a a continual prayer life, integrity, but and then second of all, selfless. Prayer leads to selflessness. If your prayers do not lead you to empty yourself... You're not praying right. You realize that, right? What's prayer? What's the number one goal of prayer? Number one goal of prayer is for you to see God as he truly is and you see yourself as you truly are. And you know what that's always required of me? The emptying of myself. The emptying of myself. You know what? Do you realize that's what was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus was literally emptying himself on behalf of serving his heavenly father. Very interesting. Look over verses 5 through through 11. If you look through there, you'll see eight times he's mentioned as a servant. He believed his compelling purpose came from his master. And he knew he was the servant to pull off the compelling purpose. And so therefore there was passion, uh, there was uh, discipline, there was integrity, and now there's selflessness. Nehemiah recognized that he was a servant of the Lord, willing to do the things of the Lord. He was selfless. Think of the comforts and conveniences he was leaving behind. He actually lived, listen to me, he lived in the king's palace. He had great comforts, great conveniences. He was the cupbearer. He wasn't just the one who would test the water or test the wine and the food that would come before him. Many people believe cupbearers were some of the greatest advisors to these kings, if you go back and do the history. And he had access to all the modern day comforts and conveniences and he was willing to leave all that to go to the mess that he was called to go to. And by the way, it was a mess. Next, they have a clear plan. There's priorities. 
So in chapter 2, what you find is he goes before King Artaxerxes and, and he's there. He's actually carrying out his job. If you read the scripture, he's carrying it out. And the king noticed it, that his cupbearer was sad. How many of you would find that troubling? Your cupbearer, he's the one testing. Make sure you're not, someone's not trying to kill you. And he, he shows up sad. King says, what's going on? I want you to look at verse 4. Then the king said to me, Why do you, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. How many of you ever done that? Something hits you in a moment and you're like, oh God, please give me something. <laughs> you ever been there? And that's what's happening. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Listen. There was a plan, there's a priority, and the priority was to build, rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. We find that out a little bit later. Now, here it is again. They have a clear plan. There's priorities. There were priorities that were set in his life. His priority was not the comforts and conveniences of where he was, but where God was sending him. That became the priority in his life. The problem with many of us is we don't like God's priorities. We, we want the comforts and conveniences over here, and that's what we place as a priority. But Nehemiah was willing to let God change up the priorities in his life. You know, when, you know another thing I've noticed as I've gotten older? I love routine now. Me and T Tina and I, we got a routine. She's not in her place. Uh, I don't know what's going on in our home, but my wife sits in a recliner. That right there tells you I've been emasculated. And I sit, I lay on the couch. If you walked into our home, you say, well, she must wear the pants in the house. <laughs> Problem is, the recliner we bought, I don't fit in. <laughs> my head hangs off the back, my feet are, never mind, I won't get into that. But anyway, <laughs> we like routine. We were talking about routine the other day. We, we were like, all right, here's how Friday's going to go. Well, Friday I use a day, I like to take about half a day to do something I like to do. You probably know me, but I like to go play golf. So I'm going to go play golf. She's going to work in the yard. And we're happy. We send each other off to our little times. And then we say, well, what are you going to do this afternoon? Well, why don't we get together at 4 o'clock and go to Gastonia and get something to eat? Like that's new. That happens every Friday. <laughs> then we're going to come back. You might make us some brownies, right? Yeah, I'm going to make brownies. There you go. Go get some brownies tonight. And we sit there and we watch television. That's the way we conduct our Sabbath. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but here's, it's so amazing that, listen, but what if God said this? Brian and Tina, let's, let's change up the priority. That would cause me to look really hard and say, are you sure, God? kind of like this day. I'll give you those other days. This day's pretty good. He was willing to let the priority change. Next, he was intentional. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? Now, let me tell you what, uh, what he does here. I don't have time to go through it all, but basically he goes and he gives him his wish list. 
He basically says, King, if I'm going to pull this off, I've got to be very intentional in how I do this. And what I need you to do is give me passes all the way to my homeland, which he had to pass through different territories of governors who, who reigned over those territories. And then when I get there, I'm going to need supplies. And I know the best lumber is going to come from the north. How about giving me, so Asaph can give me the timber and I can get this and I can get that. He had, he had it all planned out. There was intentionality to his compelling purpose. There was the passion, there was the discipline, but there was intentionality. The problem with most of us and the reason we accomplish nothing in our lives is because we don't have intentionality. We want God to bless us financially. We want God to, get, to, to help us as we give to, to the work of the church, but we don't have a budget. We, we say, God, you know, I want to give you the first part of my day, but we don't plan it that way. We just enter in the day like we always do. Well, wonder what's coming up today. Well, let's see what we can respond to. Dear Jesus, help me to respond well to today. That's not how we live our lives. We live our lives with intentionality. Like I said last week, maybe we wake up that morning and say, God, send me one person today to talk to, to minister to. Lord, help me to, help me to be aware of what that may look like. Lord, show me your, your word, what, what you got for me. It's amazing how we just, we live with no intentionality. I want you to look at verse 10. When Samballot the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard of it, they heard of all that was going on, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Now, let me just tell you this. They would never, they would never feel this way unless they knew something that was going down was intentional, that there was a plan to it, that the king has, that this person went before the king and the king gave his blessings to it. They would have never been bothered that by that and said that unless that was taking place. Now, these verses we just read are all about vision. Nehemiah created a list of things he needed from the king to accomplish his task, to invest in the future of God's people, to influence, in their to influence the community. Listen, our desire is to expand our influence by investing in the future, by building leaderships in our home, leadership in our homes and our church, by duplicating ourselves, continuing to reach people in our community and around the world, by reaching out to all generations, by being intentional about what we believe and about the culture we believe we all move, that moves us towards our purpose and our mandate, not only as individuals, but as a church. Next, they have a courageous persistence. And we see their commitment. In Nehemiah chapter 4, if you turn over there and you look at verses 10 through 14, you're going to see that, that all of a sudden uh, the, the laborers are struggling. They're, 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 the task is almost overwhelming. Let me ask you a question. you ever been overwhelmed? Some of you say, yeah, this past week, I can't, I, I'm sitting right here overwhelmed. I understand that. There's times I come in here and I feel the same way. But it's all about commitment. It's all about staying the course. Sometimes you got to know you just got to get through it. And all of a sudden, uh, Nehemiah, he's up there and it's a great work and everybody started off on the right path, but all of a sudden the workers are failing and, and, and their heart is growing discouraged. And you know why? Because the enemy is pressing in. The enemy's pressing in. All of a sudden, they're wondering, are we going to lose our life to this cause? How many of you would say that would be pretty overwhelming? The possibility of you doing that compelling purpose with passion and discipline, and you're committed. But the fact is, you could lose your life for what's been asked of you. You see, there was a great work, 
and it got the intention of the enemies. And they started pressing in. I want you to skip to chapter 5, verse 12. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Basically, what happened was Nehemiah must have been an inspirational leader. He stands before them. He's got a plan of intentionality. He says, we're going to do this, 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 and this. And guess what? You'll be safe and we'll move on. And they said, you know something? We can recommit ourselves to this. And that's what good leadership always does. Whether you're talking about leadership in a home or you're talking about leadership in a church or leadership anywhere. They are the people who stand before the people when, when they get discouraged, when their heart goes, goes to the point where they feel like they're failing and, and, and they speak life back into the process. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. And they made a recommitment of themselves. Next, they have a courageous persistence. Not only committed, but they're driven. They're driven, and we're almost done, so stay with me for just a little longer. And so it says in verse 3, so I sent messengers to them. So what happened was the enemy found out they couldn't threaten their life and get anywhere. Like, so then they said, okay, hey, Nehemiah, how about coming over here? We want to talk to you about something. Now, do you think they're up to any good? They're absolutely no good in what they want to say. It was a temptation to leave the compelling purpose. It was a temptation to walk over there and, and, and get rid of maybe some stress in his life by, saying, by just saying, yeah, maybe we just need to stop here. And they kept pressing him, kept pressing him. And here's what he said. Verse three, I am doing a great work. I have a compelling purpose. I have passion, discipline, and committed. Now we're driven. So I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. You see, the enemy attempted to keep the work from happening. Let me just say this. The biggest enemy we have in our world today right now, I believe, is distractions. You can't even carry on conversation with someone. All of a sudden, beep. And what's the first thing they do? Hold on right there. Hey, I'm sitting here. I've done that to some of y'all. No, I had. But anyway, you, you see what I'm saying? We're so distracted. And you look at these people who are, they can't live without their phone. I, I saw a teenager the other day. They didn't know where they put their phone. You would have thought someone died in the family. Distractions are everywhere. Verse 6, chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day. 52 days later, and it happened. Listen, I love this. When all the enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, they were disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this was a work done by our God. Wouldn't it be cool if this community looked at this church and said, that could have only been God. I mean, think about your own life. Think about what God's called you to. So here's the conclusion. If we as a church family are going to have any impact for the kingdom, we must rely on the Holy Spirit to lead us and then act intentionally and with passion as he directs us. And y'all, that begins with each individual doing what they're called to do. With passion, with commitment, and they're driven. And most of all, integrity. That when they stand before God in their prayer time, they see him as he truly is, and they see themselves as they truly are. And they operate from that standing. 
I'll ask the ushers to come forward if they would. Father, we just come to you right now, and we just thank you again for just your word and, oh, just how practical it is. Lord, I've heard someone recently say that that's an outdated book that was written thousands of years ago. How can it speak to us today? Father, we thank you for speaking to us today. And Father, I just pray right now. I know there's people in this room that feel like, well, I'm on the other side of this life and I'm winding down and I'm retired. I mean, how can God use me? Lord, help us to realize he wants to use every one of us. If there's breath in our lungs, if there's air in our lungs, if our heart is still beating, he desires to do more. And Father, I pray we'll be attuned to what he's calling us to. Father, we thank you for, this, for the opportunity to uh, receive this offering. As people give this to this offering, Father, that we continue this work to be intentional, to have passion, to do what you called us to do. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.